Welcome to another episode of Life Excellence with Brian Bartis. Join me as I talk with amazing athletes, entrepreneurs, authors, entertainers, and others who have achieved excellence in their chosen field, so you can learn their tools, techniques, and strategies for improving performance and achieving greater success. Welcome to Life Excellence. Brian Kruger grew up in Ypsilanti, Michigan. He was part of the comedy group Stunt Johnson Theater, and they headlined around the country working with legendary comics like the Smothers Brothers and Rich Little. In 1998, Brian started a software company, Woodwing USA, which developed a system for magazine publishers to create virtual publications, enabling writers and page designers to work collaboratively around the world. He sold that company in 2009 and started the film company Stunt3 Multimedia to make historical documentaries. Since then, Brian has produced nine feature-length films, two of which garnered Emmy nominations. In his first film, The Girl in Centerfield, Brian partnered with writer Buddy Morehouse to chronicle Ypsilanti's Carolyn King, who, as a 12-year-old in 1973, fought for the right to for girls to play Little League. In 2011, Brian and Buddy teamed up again to produce Black and Blue, the story of Gerald Ford, Willis Ward, in the 1934 Michigan-Georgia Tech football game. That film recounts the story of Georgia Tech demanding that Michigan bench its only African-American player before it would take the field against the Wolverines. Last year, Brian screened his film, where the brave dare to tread the Bob Arvin story about C. Robert Arvin, a West Point first captain who was killed in Vietnam in 1967. He is currently working on The Torch Murders, the story of a shocking local crime in 1931 that had national reverberations. Please welcome Brian Kruger. Hey, Brian, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's, uh, it's great to be on there. Brian, I know every kid in the 1970s played baseball, either in their backyard or in the streets, but I'm not sure every kid became a filmmaker. So how did you get into, into filmmaking? Well, what happened was my grandfather had a garage sale and we we're kind of helping him out with it. And I saw this Super 8 camera and he said, I asked him what it was and he said, it's a movie camera. And I said, oh, great. He goes, yeah, I've made movies with you guys, you know, we go on vacations. And I said, great. He goes, do you want it? And I said, sure. And he gave it to me. So I, I was so excited. And I went back home to my friends, Matt and Matt. There two, I had two friends named Matt comes into play because we became MBM Productions, Matt, Brian and Matt. And uh, I started to shoot my first movie, not realizing that you had to put a cartridge of Super 8 film in it. And that was a little eye opening for a 10 year old. And uh, and that's when the the problems began. <laughs> began having to buy film and get it processed was a $14 endeavor and uh, came from a family of five boys and a dad who worked at a factory. It was a little tough, but hey, you know, you get into fundraising early that way. (laughs) So obviously I want to learn more about your documentaries and I'm especially curious about this latest project, The Torch Murders. Mm -hmm. Let's back up and kind of walk through your career. You're a comedian too? Yeah. So I've always wanted to be a school teacher. So I did that. I was a, a high school teacher in Ypsilanti in the late 1980s. And um, and it was great. But I kept getting laid off because the way the school system sort of works in Michigan and a lot of around the country, it's all union based. So whenever pink slips went out, they whacked the lower third of new teachers, which I was always one. 
Um, it's very unlike business. I thought I was very good. I was young, single. So I'd stayed up late, helped with the baseball team and got home at midnight after helping to direct the play or maybe coach forensics after about getting and I'd always get hired back, but the pink slip was tough. And uh, one day a representative from an Apple computer distributor came by and said, Hey, you're the only guy we know around here that can teach Apple II computers, uh, word processing spreadsheets and database. Would you like to be an education consultant? And I thought, well, I don't know. And then they scratched down a number on a piece of paper like you see out of the movies. And I said, okay, I'm gone. <laughs> Picked up my teaching stuff and I never went back. And from there, I got into, uh, um, I, I was moonlighting as a newspaper reporter for Booth Newspapers, covered sports. And those two things, Apple computers and writing for Booth newspapers, got me into the newspaper business. And like they say, with newspaper people, if you cut them, they bleed ink. And I never got out of it. I parlayed those two careers into a career that dealt with uh, electronic publishing systems for newspapers and magazines. And by uh, 2000, I had met some guys in the Netherlands who had developed a really nice editorial front end system that did just that. So I brought it to the U.S., I uh, bought the uh, the Western Hemisphere and started to sell that software to any magazines, books, or newspapers I could find. And we got uh, Hachette, Hearst, and Time, Inc. And uh, by the end of that decade, I was doing that. But the whole time, I was doing stand-up comedy with three of my friends from high school. And that turned from being a hobby to something that was much more. Evidently, we were funnier than we thought we were going to be and found ourselves uh, on the uh, improv circuit, working Las Vegas and uh, having a great time. We ended up doing that for almost 15 years. The comedy business is a tough business. I know I, I watched a documentary uh, recently with Jerry Seinfeld and yeah. there was another comedian and, and Jerry was sort of breaking back into comedy after doing Seinfeld for years. And this other comedian, I forget his name, but he was trying to break into comedy. And I really had this appreciation, even for a guy like Jerry Seinfeld, who the, the guy is known throughout the world, literally by name and by face. And yet what he said is you, that bought him about 90 seconds. So in other words, he could go on the stage and the audience would give him grace for 90 seconds because he was Jerry Seinfeld, probably the best known comedian in the <laughs> world. And but he only got 90 seconds. And then after after that, he had to be funny. Can you tell some stories about um, just the the challenge of standing up there? I mean, it seems like you're you're standing up there basically naked, exposing yourself to the audience, whether it's five people or 500 people and you need to entertain them. You need to be funny. So how do you do that? It is now. See that that's tough, and and I actually um I really sympathize with Jerry Seinfeld, who, like you say, is he's great. We worked, we got our break from Tim Allen. We opened for Tim Allen before he signed with Disney, and um watching him was amazing because there were four of us. We always had kind of a we were a different type of act. We would plant people in the audience and heckle ourselves. We caused a lot of commotion. I we always had a lot more respect for the stand up who was up there by himself because. Even Tim Allen said this, you could be good one night, but if you're working a small town in Wisconsin somewhere and you bomb, you got a long drive back. And I can't imagine what that's like, only hearing it from people. And that just takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of courage to go up there and do it and really believe in what your craft is and really believe in your material or writing new material. So while I respect that, we didn't, and I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back, we didn't bomb too much just because we were raucous. It was a you know, if there were five comedians on the bill, 
they were all stand-ups and then a group came out we got a lot of leeway a wide berth because uh, people were it's almost like they were almost afraid because there was just so much going on that said you know we did have some down times and it just helped to get back in the car and laugh with each other the guys sure. that do it by themselves though there's a lot of courage in that lots of courage and uh, lots of respect from us from those guys and so what caused you to get out of that? I know you were about probably 10 years into uh, Woodwing USA. And I think that's about the time you stopped comedy. Did it, yeah. did it just become too much? And Brian, to- what happened was we just got older. Um, our friends were all married and having kids. Uh, we were in our late 30s. We started to think about marriage with the people we were with that time. We all had different jobs too. One of us was a police officer. The other one was the managing editor of a Gannett newspaper. We made enough money for one guy. We didn't make enough money for four of us. So it just kind of became a let's grow up thing. Plus, you know, our skits about the Brady Bunch and my three sons were getting along in the tooth come, you know, uh, the 2000s or so. And we liked writing it, but we had done a couple thousand shows and I think we were ready to step away. So that's what we did. And we used to work colleges. And just a side note, Jerry Seinfeld doesn't work colleges anymore just because of the, the political ramifications. It's really hard to be funny on campus now. And that used to be a big part of our income doing the college circuit. Nobody would touch that now at all. It, it's a tough crowd. I, I was watching <laughs> the, the other night we uh, stumbled into George Carlin does a, a bit on germs, which is actually really good and, and timely. And he could do it now. I mean, politically, he couldn't do it now, but couldn't touch it, it actually, yep. but the, the content actually is perfect for um, what's happening right now. But we started watching the, the Carson show and I made the comment to my wife that you really, you can't, you almost can't do comedy anymore. I, and I completely agree. Today, so you noticed that you saw well, that. Well, it, yeah. it, it just seems to me that in today's world, if you offend one person, then you're offensive. Mm-hmm. And comedy is, um, and I don't know, it'd be interesting to talk to real comedians, well, you would have a sense of it, but to talk to comedians about it. But comedy to me has always been um, being able to not take yourself too seriously, mm-hmm. being able to poke fun at things. And what's happened today is there's such a strong filter for offensiveness that, again, I think if you offend one person in the world today, then you're labeled offensive. And and that really, I I think that jeopardizes the whole comedy business. I'll I'll go you one step simpler on that. And that is, uh, we always looked at comedy as being holding a mirror up to the audience. And if you see yourself in the mirror, it's funny. And And you're there for entertainment, it's fun. Now, if you hold that same mirror up, you're going to offend, like you said, one person. You offend one person in social media, you're done because it'll go out all over the place that you did this on stage. Well, the stuff that we did on stage back in the day, you know, we were we were cutting the edge, but cutting the edge got us to Las Vegas too. Um, yeah. You know, we made a lot of people laugh, so that was fun. We just no way we could do that again. Yeah. So thankfully, when the Brady Bunch jokes stopped being funny, you were about ten years into your software company. Tell me about that. You talked a little bit about the the start of that. Mm-hmm. And, but talk about the, what happened over the next 10 years with that business. Yeah. So before the internet and high-speed internet, especially with images and such, if you and I, Brian ran a, a magazine and I was in New York putting the pages together and you were in Bosnia reporting on it before our software came along, you'd write a story, have your photographer take pictures there. And then you call it sending out, sending it over the wall, which means you'd put it on the wire 
and you'd send it into New York and you wouldn't see that story or those pictures again until it was on the newsstand. What Woodwing software allowed us to do back then is throw everything into a virtual page so you could get out of the foxhole or wherever you were, go to a computer, log on and see how that page was coming together. Now that was uh, efficient for production, but it was even more efficient for advertising because it used to be in the case of Time Magazine, for instance, they had to be all put together by Tuesday night so it could go to print on Thursday morning. Well, we gave Time Magazine and all of their publications another 24 hours to sell ads, which made the return on investment uh, really quick. And so that became very popular with a lot of the magazines and newspapers and such. And that was mostly in print. With uh, uh, fading out of print, both in newspapers, books, magazines, and everything else, I decided it was a good time to get out of the business, you know, which was fine. I had to come home and tell my wife that I was going to be a documentary filmmaker, which was an interesting conversation because the revenue stream is a little different, <laughs> different than that. But <laughs> So you've been doing that about 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Why, why documentaries? Why historical and biographical documentaries? Um, it was kind of by accident. Uh, we, we ran into, and I had done a feature film a few years before, but just as an actor, I was a producer in it, but really I was just in it. And that was fun. Um, documentaries for me did a couple of things. Uh, I love documentaries. First of all, you'll, you get complete control. If you're doing something yourself, you go out and find the story, you interview the people, you shoot it, you edit it and you get it out. You tell it your own way. When you're doing a feature film, it involves a lot of people and there's a lot of voices and a lot of rooms that want a voice on how that goes. Um, we ran into a story about the first girl to play Little League Baseball and we didn't run into it. My writing partner, Buddy Morehouse, actually played on her team in 1973 and I was playing across town. So we knew the story very well. So we decided to make that the first story that we told in a documentary story. And, um, and it was fascinating. And what we decided was that was interesting about it, and we've used this all along now, is we want to tell stories that people will look at and go, that happened? That happened here? I, I had no idea that happened. So all of our stories are about that. And Brian, I could spend the next 60 years and never leave. I live in, in Michigan, Wayne County, Michigan, never leave Wayne County and do a documentary every year because there's so many stories out there that people forgot. And I'll make this short. When we were shooting that film in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, on the way out, we were talking to the vice president of communications, a guy named Lance Van Auken, who I think he might be the president now. And I just happened to ask on the way out, I said, and I was a little league coach. And I said, Lance, do you guys have a hall of fame for kids here at, at Williamsport? And he said, no, no, Brian, that would be insane. We'd have parents all over us, which is true. I coached in gross point. Every gross point parent would want their kid in the hall of fame. Anyway. So um, I, I, literally, it's like out of Hollywood. I, I started leaving the office and he goes, but if we did, we'd start with a guy in your backyard. And I said, who? And he goes, have you ever heard of Pinky Darris, Art Darris? And I said, no. He goes, oh my God, come back in here. You're not going to believe this. And he had almost like right here on a file cabinet, uh, a manila folder that said, and he started reading me baseball statistics of this 12-year-old kid. And they're phenomenal. He was a pitcher and it was, I won't recite them now. They're just amazing statistics. And he said, we have never seen anything like him before and never will. He's our Ty Cobb. And he goes, I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he's still alive, but he came from Hamtramck. So of course, Buddy and I get on a plane and we head back to Detroit. Instead of going home to our wives, we just go right out to Hamtramck, this, you know, what used to be a Polish uh, town. It's quite a bit different now. It's very Syrian now, which is kind of cool. But we had to find a Polish bar and just start asking people, have you heard of Pinky Darris? And 
<laughs> this is the second of three of these movie moments. We opened up this, one of the last remaining Polish bars in Hamtramck, opened up the door. It was dark. A beam of light shone across the bar with four guys sitting on it. And we said, anybody here, Pinky Darris? And everything stopped and they turned their head over and they said, come on in, you know? So we went in and they said, we don't know what happened to him. Last we heard, he was a police officer in Warren. So thanks guys. So we get in our car and we drive out to Warren go straight to the police headquarters. Somebody knew enough about who this guy was that took us right to the police chief. So we're sitting in the police chief's office and this is like an hour and a half after we had landed in, in Metro. And we told him the whole story about Art or about Pinky Darris. And all, he stopped for a second after we said it and he said, Artie? And I said, yeah, Art Darris. He goes, no way. And he sat back, he goes, I rode with that guy. And I said, is he still alive? And said, well, yeah, he lives up, in, uh, up on 16 mile and mound. And he goes, I had no idea he was that guy. Oh, so wow. we, yes, yeah, so we drive out. This is the third part of that. We knock on the door, open it up that far. An old face comes out and it says, hello. And I said, are you Pinky Darris? And he said, yes, I am. Nobody's called me that in a long time. And I said, well, I'm Brian Kruger. I want to do a movie about you. And he looked and he goes, well, come on in. And that's how that whole thing started. And that was our first Emmy nomination, the story of Pinky Darris, which is an astonishing story. I won't bore you with it now, but amazing story. So you really stumble into these. Uh, yeah. Literally. It sounds like a little bit of a little bit of luck in the beginning and a little bit of detective work. In your yeah. Own and I'll say that, and, and this, this will ring true with you because you seem to be that kind of guy. It's not so much luck. It's keeping your eyes open and appreciating who's around you telling you something. I think we walk around with blinders all day long and, it, and it's especially egregious with senior citizens. Um, we walk by people who are in their eighties and over as though they might be in the way and you might not do it even in a rude way, but it's like, well, that, sometimes you see it manifest on the road. Well, what's that old guy driving for? He's in my way. Or you're at the grocery store and you just don't pay attention to them. Those people are gold mines. And, and as a documentary filmmaker, I've made the mistake of waiting too long sometimes to start a story and realizing that I lost that person just years before. And I could have talked to him if I just would have talked to him. I've, that's been the biggest lesson I've learned out of all this is value people probably 60 and over. They, everybody has amazing stories to tell if you just listen to them. Well, someone once said that luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. So you're right. You couldn't agree more. Yep. Couldn't agree prepared. more. Prepared. You need to be aware. You need to be looking out for that. Yep. Um, but there, it, it, everyone has a story. I, yeah. I find it so fascinating. I was just talking to someone this morning about having conversations with people and how fascinating it is and how wonderful it is because everyone has a story and it's just so interesting. It really uh, is. And, and, and we miss them. And sometimes they're right in front of our eyes. My, my wife, Roseanne, and I help with a mass at, um, at, at, we used to before COVID, at the Rivers Senior Citizen Home in Gross Point. And they're just nice, really nice older, older people. And I wouldn't spend a lot. I'd talk to them, but it was very cursory, you know, until one of them passed away once. And I, um, I looked at her obituary, this, this frail old woman in the back. And I thought, well, she was sweet. I'm really going to miss her. But I read her obituary and she was an undersecretary for Ronald Reagan in the education department. This woman was a power broker. And yet I looked at her as somebody who might be knitting and I don't want to bother her today, but now all I wanted to do is sit and talk to her for three hours and so much to offer. And when it's gone, it's gone. You don't get that anymore. So that's my warning, my advice and everything is please stop and talk to people who are older than you. Uh, value, value who they are. It, it makes a huge difference. Well, and it's wonderful that you're capturing at least some of those stories so that yeah. people can continue to 
to um, know those stories and experience them for years to come. Brian, as you know, our show is called Life Excellence. Mm -hmm. And Life Excellence is about constant and never-ending improvement in every area of life. So I'm always interested in, in learning about success strategies and how to apply them to our own lives. And I know you speak to film students, and I'm just wondering, what do you tell kids who ask you for advice on how to become a filmmaker? It's, it's funny you should ask that. It just happened again a few days ago and again last night. But a few days ago, I was at the Apple store, a local Apple store, and a um, real nice young man saw that I was making a purchase and looked at my profile and said, hey, you're, you're a film guy. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I want to be a filmmaker someday. What should I do? Same question you just asked. And I said, you know, my, you know, my, uh, my suggestion is, and he's all ears. Yeah. I said tomorrow when you get up, make a movie, start something, start, uh, shoot something. You've got, um, you know, I did, did, did a whole Ted talk on using your iPhone as a, as camera. They're great. Go out and shoot something, shoot a scene because by four o'clock that day, if anybody asks you, what do you do for a living? You can say, I'm a filmmaker and I work at Apple to try to support my film business. Whereas if they ask you that today, you would say, well, I want to be a filmmaker someday. And there's a lot of power in that first statement. There's a lot less power in that second one. So my advice is go do it, go shoot film and don't wait. And I think the same thing can be said for novelists, for people who you know, want to be a painter, want to be a screenwriter. They always talk about that next thing they're going to do it someday, or even a podcaster. I want to do a podcast someday. Well, you know what? Do it, just do it tomorrow. And then you're in the business. And so what I say is now has been easier than any time in our history in filmmaking, especially couldn't have done what we did 10 years ago. If it was 20 years ago, film was cost of fortune. Cameras cost of fortune. Now you can do it. So I'm telling filmmakers, anybody who asks me start shooting. And uh, if you go to uh, uh, my, my website, stunt3.com, you'll see something called mini docs. They're five minute documentaries shot in 15 minutes. Um, and I've gotten so much feedback on those. And a lot, I mean, probably more than some of my other films because they said, we love those. And just because I stepped out one day and started doing it. So there's definitely something to be said for action. It's true with photographers. It's true with musicians. It really is so incredible today that we have the internet that somebody can create a, a song with their guitar in their basement and put yeah. it up on the internet and become, of course, it's not an overnight sensation, but they have the ability to get seen in a way that they have certainly didn't have probably five years ago, certainly 10. I agree. And Brian, we're of similar age, you know, when uh, long before digital cameras came along. And if you go all the way back to our super eight years, even if we would have made the citizen cane of super eight films, you couldn't show it on TV. It wouldn't be shown on TV right now. This moment, let's say our podcast right now was so epic that, you know, it go, it, it, there's a chance it can go worldwide. Well, it, it will go worldwide as soon as it goes up, but it can be a worldwide sensation and turn somebody into a filmmaker right now. And that's never happened in our history before because we have distribution. It, it's cheap to make. And the quality is amazing. Everything we shoot now is broadcast quality off our phones. So what better way to be a filmmaker than to start making films? I'm not a big fan of moving to LA and joining a film crew and working your way up. Those days are gone. Uh, they're made all over the place now. And if you want, really want to do it, do it. So what do you think holds people back? Why, why don't they take action? Uh, fear of failure. Right? And, I, and I think that's very common. As long as they say they're going to write that novel and they never do, they can always pretty safely say, well, somebody I'm going to write that novel. Whereas if they write it, it's not very good, which chances are it won't be the first time around. They won't be a failed novelist or they won't be, oh, no, I'm very, very good at this or film. 
Uh, and I didn't make a very good documentary. Trust me, the first few things that I made, I look at it and go, oh man. And I'm sure 10 years from now, I'll look at what I made now and go, oh man. Um, the point is, is go make it, go shoot it. The first one's not going to be as good as the second or the third and you'll have your moment. But whenever you don't do it, there's a safety in that fear, avoiding the fear of not participating. Well, you know, I'm going to write that novel one day. And when I do better than Hemingway, and you can keep that in your mind your whole life and never execute. That's great advice. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Brian, your latest project is the torch murders. And I want to make sure we touch on that. Torch Murders recounts a crime that took place in Michigan in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. How did you get involved in that story? And when do we get to see it? Okay. I got involved in the story in 1983, uh, long before digital film or anything. And I just got paired off with an older guy who was golfing in Ypsilanti. Um, he was golfing for a sponsorship per hole for um, MS. And I golfed with him for about nine holes or so. He's 80-some years old. And he told me a story about this murder that happened in 1931 where four teenage kids, two boys and two girls, were brutally murdered on a Tuesday morning at 2 in the morning. Um, oh and their bodies were burned and um, discovered the next morning. And by Thursday night, go with me on this, 72 hours later, the three murderers that they found, the three murderers by Thursday night, were in a car and heading to Jackson prison to serve four life sentences, one for each kid. What happens in those 72 hours is remarkable. The story goes worldwide. It's in every newspaper in every city around the world. There are lynch mobs and trying to find out who did this murder, but it's a swift justice story. And long and short, it's all about a swift justice story, which we don't do anymore. Thank God, because anyway, and I follow the murderers through their lives. Two of them pass away early, but one gets out of prison in the late 60s, pardoned by Governor Romney in Michigan, and how he ends up back in the city where he committed the crime and dies that evening, first time back to that city. When I ask people from Ypsilanti if they've ever heard of this story, they say no. And when that happens, that's a, that's a Brian Kruger stunt three film because I go, ah, <laughs> we've got something here, you know, that'll come out sometime Q3 in 2022. COVID set it back yeah. about a year. COVID does yeah. damages to documentaries <laughs> and about everything. Oh, that's else. fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that. Um, we're about out of time, but I right. really appreciate your taking the time to talk today, Brian. Um, this has been terrific. Best wishes for your continued success. And I look forward to the release of the torch murders. Until next time, this is Brian Bartis. Dream big dreams and make each day your masterpiece. You have been listening to Life Excellence with Brian Bartis, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Brian Bartis. For more information, visit brianbartis.com and be sure to visit us on YouTube at Life Excellence with Brian Bartis.